This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. Whether or not you're a tennis fan, you probably have a picture of Roger Federer in your head. For starters, he's Swiss, so you might be thinking precision and unthinking perfection. And for much of his career, Roger Federer has lived up to that. The picture of tennis excellence that includes 18 Grand Slam titles in two decades and a following on and off the tour that borders on the religious. But a strange thing has happened to Roger Federer. He's loosening up, he's relaxing his grip, and he says he's having fun. After a string of injuries and time away from tennis, Federer has returned with a new perspective on life. In this week's episode, Kurt Streeter sits down with Federer to find out how time away from the game, including chats with Bill Gates, impromptu karaoke sessions, and selfies at the Met Gala, have changed the perspective of one of the best tennis players in the world. And make sure to stick around after the story as Kurt joins me to talk about how his own brief tennis career helped him connect with Federer. And now, here's Once More with Feeling by Kurt Streeter. Once More with Feeling. Two decades into his legendary career, Roger Federer is playing with a newfound freedom and having way too much fun to quit now. By Kurt Streeter. Ah, it's all happening again. Roger Federer remembers the moment, the word with painful clarity. Again. He was down 3-1 in the fifth set of the 2017 Australian Open final, losing to Rafael Nadal, his career kryptonite. Nadal, who was 6-0 against Federer in Grand Slams since 2008, pounded forehands at him. Federer felt his legs go heavy, then heavier. He started talking to himself. I recall saying, You have to try to break now, pal, because later on he is going to stay in the lead and have the break, and then too much luck is involved to turn the whole thing around. More than any player in the modern era, Roger Federer has made the game look easy. Federer the graceful. Federer the perfect. Federer the ideal tennis player. It's what makes him so intoxicating to watch. It's what inspires a near-literal traveling church a Roger Federer faithful at ATP events. But what looks easy comes with a soundtrack, an internal monologue. And in that monologue, the greatest male tennis player of all time will sometimes grind hard, full of doubt and pressure and frustration, wrestling with history and ambition, fearful of coming up short. Oh, He's got me at the finish line, Federer said to himself. He struggled to calm down. He kept talking, tried to stay positive. I told myself, I've done very little wrong. I've played committed. I've played bigger with my backhand than I ever have against Rafa. I've had a lot of backhand winners. He was resetting, centering himself in the middle of a freefall. And somewhere in the conversation between Federer and Federer, he found the calm he was seeking. This was an unlikely final to be in, coming off a left knee injury at age 35, and the boisterous crowd was with him. He fed on its energy. He remembers it now as some combination of zen and excitement. 
a different mindset, he says. Instead of getting shaky, he got energized. Instead of reproducing an old pattern, he found something new. I had the best twenty minutes of my life, maybe, on the tennis court, he says. I just zoned in and just went. He lifts his right hand and mimics a jet taking off. It climbs higher and higher, and then it flies away. Federer is sitting at a long, lacquered table in a private dining room at the Four Seasons Hotel in downtown Seattle. He is tanned and wears a black Nike top and black Nike sweats. He sits up in his chair, unspooling the moment in Melbourne, excited at the memory of it. What I was telling myself is, play free, he says. Don't feel like you're in a straitjacket. Feel like you have nothing to lose, maybe for one of the first times. With Federer serving for the match, Nadal made one last charge, earning two break points and threatening to take back momentum. Federer kept talking to himself, urging himself on. Just keep not thinking too much about the what-ifs, the pressure, the moment. I know it's huge, we all know it's huge, but just try to shake it off, don't freeze up. Fight, but don't try too hard and want it too much. He looks out the hotel room window toward Puget Sound. The sky is clear and blue. Just like Switzerland, he says. Snow-covered mountains rise in the distance. The view is scarred by an unsightly gray power plant. He looks past it to the water and the white peaks. I let go, he says. The twenty minutes in Melbourne have changed the tone and shape of the last phase of Roger Federer's career. For as long as he keeps playing tennis, he says, he will seek the feeling he found on that night. He is closing in on two decades as a professional, a record career that includes eighteen Grand Slams, but winning the Australian after a nearly five-year major tournament drought, and against a legion of critics who said his best days might be behind him, feels like a beginning somehow. Never mind making tennis look easy. He is learning how to play the game at ease. I'm having a great time, he says, pouring himself a Pellegrino. A fantastic time, really. He doesn't mean just at Melbourne. He dominated at the BNP Paribas Open in Indian Wells, California in March, then won another big title in Miami in April. He beat Nadal in all three tournaments twice without losing a set. The run seems to be helping him ignore expectations and retirement chatter as he picks and chooses the tournaments he plays while his younger rivals push through the ATP tour schedule. Thinking about saving energy, going easy on his surgically repaired left knee and extending his playing days as long as he can, Federer recently opted out of the upcoming French Open. Clay courts often mean long, grinding matches, and the surface doesn't favor Federer's quick game. I can just play the tournaments I want to play and enjoy the process, he says. If I do show up and play, I love it. When I'm in training, I enjoy being in training. When I'm not in training, if I'm on vacation, I can enjoy that. I'm not in a rush, so I can take a step back and just actually enjoy. He is in Seattle because of Bill Gates. A Federer superfan and dedicated rec-level player, Gates watched his favorite player at Indian Wells. 
They bonded there over tennis and philanthropy. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has spent billions on improving living standards in Africa. Federer's Foundation also focuses on Africa, especially education for children. They decided to organize an exhibition at the Key Arena in Seattle. Federer versus John Isner, the tall, big-serving American, as part of a fundraiser for Federer's charity. A couple of days before the exhibition, Federer, wife Mirka, and a few others from his team visited Gates' 66,000-square-foot compound on the shores of Lake Washington, called Xanadu 2.0. Before courses of halibut and steak, they spoke about physics and Leonardo da Vinci and his audacious, open-minded genius. Growing up, Federer wasn't focused on being a student, he says. He stopped going to school at age 16 to play tennis full-time. Over the years, he's tried to soak up knowledge where he can. The night at Gates's estate was a career high point. It was so inspiring, he says. It was surreal. Gates invited his guests into his library. He and Federer paid special attention to a notebook in a glass case, the Codex Lester, filled with Leonardo's drawings, theories, and thoughts. Gates paid $30.8 million for it in 1994. Federer stared in amazement. He tells you that da Vinci wrote upside down and from right to left. Leonardo da Vinci. And he was not only great at one thing, but he was also great at other things. And you realize how broad somebody's mind can be. Bill Gates is one of those people, too. You can feel it. He makes you not because he wants to in any way, because he's super humble, but he just makes you feel so small, in the sense that I know so little. Everything he says just seems really important, and you try to absorb it. I tried really to put my antennas up. Over the course of a long weekend, Federer and Gates had two dinners and a lunch together. They practiced tennis in front of an exclusive audience of deep-pocket donors, and Federer presented Gates with a new racket similar to his own, a matte black Wilson RF-97. It was inscribed on the throat with Gates's profile and renamed the BG-97. Gates was struck by Federer's curiosity and, of course, by his grace. You know, tennis, it's sort of physics, he says, but it's also artistic, particularly the way Roger appears to move so effortlessly. Practicing with Federer, noticing his attention to detail, his meticulous approach, Gates was reminded of a software engineer's painstaking efforts to make computer programs easy to use. You're making impossible things actually look fairly easy because you've done so much behind the scenes to understand it, he says. At the exhibition, Federer and Gates played a light-hearted set of doubles with Isner and Pearl Jam guitarist Mike McCready. Gates was nervous about playing in front of a crowd. His reputation as a computer genius and philanthropist is unassailable, but what if he embarrassed himself as a tennis player? Federer took him aside. One of the world's greatest tennis players became a coach. One of the world's richest men became a student. The lessons were imported from Australia. Be aggressive but loose. Breathe deep. Keep a zen-like focus on the ball. Let go, 
Federer said. He made it clear, Gates says, that we were going to have fun. Gates didn't miss a single serve. Once a carefully crafted image of Swiss perfection, Federer has long showed only glimpses of his life in carefully choreographed doses. But lately, that's been changing. I have an easier time sharing these feelings that I have with people, he says. He laughed through an impromptu recording of a karaoke moment in January with tour buddies Tommy Haas and Grigor Dimitrov. We're starting a boy band. Hashtag not in sync, said his Instagram account. The video went viral. He filmed a practice session in Dubai wearing a microphone, describing drills in real time and taking questions from fans. I miss you guys, he said. That is why I am training so hard and trying to get back, so that we can sort of see each other again. At Indian Wells, he held a news conference for elementary school kids and talked kittens and oatmeal and parents. Then he plopped to the floor and did push-ups with laughing second-graders. In Miami, he posed for a selfie with a large iguana that trundled around the side courts. Roger is feeling it, says Haas, a longtime pro. At the Met Gala in New York in early May, Federer wore a tuxedo that looked very much like a Federer tuxedo. Classic and well-trimmed. But when he turned around, there was a cobra on the back. A bejeweled, tongue-flashing cobra on Roger Federer. Wrap your mind around that. He snapped selfies. They flew across the Internet. I thought, come on, let's come up with something cool, he says. I've never been so, let me look good. Let's do something fun here. Famously private and focused, he says he sometimes muses now about how cool it might be to show up at a public park, surprise people and shoot hoops with them or hit tennis balls. But so far he hasn't been able to bring himself to do it. He's still Swiss, after all. Showing up unannounced on someone else's turf would be impolite. I'm entering someone's space, and I would disrupt somebody. Going to the park and doing that and seeing people's faces would be very cool, but I don't know. I'm too shy to do it for now. Federer is surprised by how excited people have been about him since Australia. I've had rocky years the last few years, he says, and I did have my doubts. I think people can relate to that. Until now, he largely has been a blank slate upon which fans can project their feelings. Like Gates, who sees in him some fantastic combination of science and art. But if perfection was once the draw for Fed fans, maybe now it's something more human. Reality peaked in 2016 when he twisted a knee while bathing his children in Melbourne and tore his meniscus, requiring surgery. If a simple task of fatherhood caused a serious injury, how much longer could he expect to play tennis like Roger Federer? Then he hurt his back. Then, at Wimbledon, he fell in a heap against Milos Raonic in the semifinals. His knee newly aggravated. He took six months off the tour for rehab. For the first time since he was a teenager, he experienced what it was like to have significant time away from pressure and fame. He spent long stretches at home, near Zurich, he hung out at his second home in Dubai. He visited Greece and took his family to the Hamptons. It felt like the end of a career, he says. He missed the game, 
but also learned that when the time comes to retire, he will be able to handle it. When all is said and done, he says, it will be fine. Knowing this has made it easier to get back into the game. He followed the tour during his rehab, tracking who was struggling and who was on a roll. On an indoor court in Switzerland, he began to hit balls again. The ritual was familiar. But it felt different, too. He sensed that playing tennis offered a special kind of truth for him, a feeling of mastery and control and singular competition that he would never get anywhere else, a feeling he liked. Call it joy. Oh, man, he recalls thinking. It would be nice to be back. It would be nice. As a teenager, Federer says he had an amazing time, coming up, sharing the locker room with the guys for the first time. Between ages 20 and 30, he broke through and dominated the men's game like few before him. After 30, he was up and down until his injury. His play this season stands apart from the years when he was winning three Grand Slam tournaments a year. Back then, there were stretches when the expectations were absurd. People were like, Oh my God, he's maybe going to lose a set in this match, he recalls. And I'm thinking like, Okay, guys, margins are slim. It is normal to lose sets. It might be normal to lose a match. Now, neither Federer nor his fans are certain what to expect. He turns 36 in August. This was supposed to be the year of his steep decline. After Australia, Indian Wells, and Miami, after getting a seeming upper hand on the doll, what does he think about the future now? Wimbledon in July is his holy grail. He is practicing on hard, fast courts with Wimbledon balls. After that, he plans a full schedule, highlighted by the U.S. Open and the Tour Finals. Maybe he'll finish another season ranked number one. I think if I find the right balance, it could be quite exciting, he says. Exciting enough to stave off any notions of impending retirement, though he is coy about predictions. I will play until 40, he says, deadpan. Then he laughs, just maybe not on the tour. His goal right now is to keep a freshness, a freeness in his game. It showed at Indian Wells. During practice on the olive and blue courts near the main stadium, the spectators sat ten rows deep in the stands. He toyed with the ball, spinning it sideways, slapping it to all corners. The fans gasped with delight. He bent to adjust a sock. They gasped again. He paused to soak it in. Back in Seattle, he lifts his feet onto a leather-backed chair in the hotel dining room and stretches his legs. Of one thing, he's certain. At this point in my career, I will be more laid back. That was Once More with Feeling by Kurt Streeter. Kurt joins us now on the hotline. Thanks for being here, Kurt. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So for someone like Roger Federer, known around the globe, uh, one of the top tennis players, what does it take to actually get to spend some time with him? <laughs> uh, that, that's a story in itself. You know, I, I first... Uh, started approaching this story actually in uh it was Wimbledon of 2015 I was back there and I had some discussions with his agent uh Tony Godsick about 
trying to do a trying to do a story about Roger. And at the time, my plan was to try to do a you know a, a really deep dive where I spend time with Roger behind the scenes and I'm hanging out with you know him as he's prepping for tournaments, all that kind of stuff. Which you know I've done I've done a lot of those kinds of stories, but uh, maybe I've never done some something like that with somebody as famous as as Federer. So that proved to be uh, impossible, <laughs> that idea. Uh, so we, we, kicked, we kicked the idea around. I kicked the idea around with his agent for, for really off and on for, for, you know, well over a year. And, it, and it, you know, and it became clear that I was going to have to limit, the, my, limit the, uh, the scope of the story, which was fine. And then it, then it really just turned into uh, finding a way to sort of nail him down and get, getting getting time with him, and that proved to be very very difficult because he's just you know two things about him he he's extremely busy uh, and he's very very private. I mean, this is one of the main reasons that I wanted to do a story about Roger was, you know, if you think about it, you when have we really seen you know needy. Uh, interesting stories about him, you know, that are with him. Uh, almost never really. Um, there've been a few here and there. Uh, but he's a very, very private person and he's not one who likes to, you know, uh, shout about himself or really reveal himself other than on the court and, and at, and at tournaments. So I just kept at it and, you know, I, I would drop it for a couple of months and then I'd get back to his agent and, uh, I must say his agent was, was you know, very good in, in eventually hooking us up when Roger, uh, by chance, ended up playing an exhibition tournament in Seattle, which is where where I happen to live. So uh, I had flown earlier this year to, uh, to uh, Indian Wells to try to track him down and see if I could get time with him. And I'd flown to Miami also to see if I could get time with him, and I was never able to. Uh, and then, again, just by chance... Uh, <laughs> a great stroke of luck. He ends up coming to my backyard and, uh, and I sort of had him then. So, uh, that's how it all happened when, when he ended up coming to Seattle for this exhibition with Bill Gates. And that became a, a, you know, a a strong focus in the story because he's formed this relationship with, and this connection with Gates of all people. So, right, right, right. Well, we'll get back to that in in a minute. But, uh, as you mentioned, like one of the things that is well known about Federer is the fact that he is so private and yet you know from this story it feels like he's really opening up to you and and talking about some of the changes that he's undergoing or at least the ways that he feels and i'm wondering how did you sort of pull that out of him was that something that he was sort of free with or how how did you get him to sort of open up about that well i think he's in a mode right now where he is feeling you know if you can if you can get him you know if you can find time with him and he feels comfortable with you um I think he's in a mode right now where he's self-reflective and he's, he's clearly, you know, he understands that this is the end of his, you know, or not the end, but this is the the last stretch of his career. Who knows how long that stretch will be. I mean, that could be three or four more years, but he seems to be in a, in a self-reflective mode and, and perhaps more willing to, uh, to open up about, you know, uh, how he, you know, internal is his, his internal process and, um, so maybe it's just, maybe it's partly a function of where he is in his career right now. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that, uh, that he felt comfortable talking to me. One of the, one of the un- unusual 
things about my background is I actually played tennis. Um, uh, it, I actually held, like, I held the world ranking on the ATP tour for like four years in the, from the late eighties through the early nineties. So I was a decent, uh, tennis player and, and, uh, I'm going to say that you're uh, more than decent if you got, if you were an <laughs> ATP ranking, cause I've certainly nowhere yeah. near that. Well, what it was, was I mean, sort of in layman's terms, I was the equivalent of a, of a, of a single a baseball player, right? Minor, you know, low minor leagues. Right. So, and I had actually played in Switzerland, and I actually had played in tournaments that uh, some of the same tournaments that one of Rogers' sort of foundational coaches, um, the late Peter Carter, um, had played in. Um, Peter Carter uh, is a guy who who helped Roger through his junior years and really was very very key to his 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 early success in laying the groundwork for his game. And Peter died tragically in a in a car accident in South Africa. But I had these sort of odd connections uh, with with tennis, with Switzerland, having played a little bit there, a little bit through Peter Carter. I didn't know him, but we played in the same tournaments. And when I talked to Roger about about all those things, uh, you know, I, I made sure to bring those up <laughs> that I wasn't sort of the you know I have a different back- background than a lot of people in the print media, at least. And he seemed to. I, I felt like that sort of relaxed him a little bit more mm-hmm. and uh and uh he, he was joking you know he said i uh, he referred to me as a journeyman as a as, as a journeyman <laughs> player at one time and i've, I've never felt, i've never felt more honored to be called the journeyman <laughs> <laughs> so I, um and uh and i i think he, he it's almost as if he felt like you know he was talking to somebody that could sort of understand the game in a, in a different way than maybe he's used to when he's talking to people in, who uh to writers right uh, right um and so uh that seemed to help and honestly he just he just seemed like he was in a really good mood he wasn't on the tour um it was sort of the perfect time to catch him uh, he'd had obviously a great start. He won the Australian Open, won Miami, won Indian Wells, and he was just taking time off. He was skipping the clay court season. So while everybody else was grinding away and you know getting injured on the <laughs> on the clay and playing you know in Monte Carlo and all those uh, you know the, the Nadal swing of the of the tour, uh, he was just relaxing and chilling with Bill Gates and uh, and you know, doing all this fun stuff in Seattle. And, and he really seemed to also really, I got to say, he seemed to really be enjoying Seattle. As, as I mentioned in the story, it, it, it reminded him of Switzerland. And right. it, I mean, it is very much like Switzerland in terms of topography and, and even the, the culture here is, is, is somewhat similar as well. So the piece starts off with the Australian Open. And I'm yeah. wondering why you wanted to start with reconstructing that and how did you go through that process of, of putting the pieces together from from the match? Well, um, you know, I, I thought, uh, you know, th- that was when when he when he when he was talking about uh, um, there's a stretch in there, there's a quote in there where he, he mentions that 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 the last part of the Australian Open when he, when he was he had been down three one and he makes this incredible run in the fifth set to you know where he, you know where he, just takes the match by, you know, by the collar and, and, and wins it. Um, he actually said that that was, um, what do you say, uh, maybe one, one of the best 20 minutes of tennis and it's that he'd ever, ever played or that he'd ever experienced on a, 
uh, on on a tennis court. And I thought that was really, really uh, something to, you know, for all the success that this guy's had. And he's talking about this might might have been the best 20 minutes he's ever had on a tennis court. I really zoomed in on that. And uh, I really wanted to know sort of his, uh, I wanted to know his, his, what was going through his head during that during that period. And he talked a lot about, um, and he was very open about how he's found this new mode of talking to himself and how after last year's injuries where he had to take about six months off of the tour, the first time he'd ever been off of the tour, he came back uh, determined to talk to himself differently and to, uh, you know, to enjoy the moment in a way that maybe he'd never enjoyed before and to just, just almost be more relaxed, which is really stunning to think of when you think of Roger Federer, who you think of as people who watch tennis. I mean, you think he's the most relaxed, one of the most relaxed players ever, but he, he, and yet there's this been, there's been this, of course he's human. There's this emotional, uh, churn that he's always felt and that he's always had to, had to, you know, battle those internal demons in the toughest moments. And he was, you know, he was pretty open about that. Um, so I just liked the fact that, you know, uh, I, 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 I personally, I, maybe it's a, really a, a personal thing. But I think it worked in the story. People seem to really like that opening. Um, you know, just to be able to get in somebody's head, like, like you know, at his level, a master at, at, at his craft, uh, in one of the most key moments and hear him talking about that internal dialogue. And it just felt very human. It felt like something that we all struggle with. Yeah. And I got to say, I mean, I think that one of the things about Federer that, that is captivating to people is that throughout his career, particularly playing uh, Nadal, we've seen this guy who generally is so masterful and so on top of everything. And so, um, uh, like w- with no no chinks in the armor, there have been these many moments against Nadal in particular where we've seen him become very uh, almost you could see doubt in his face, you know, and you could see him becoming like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I you know and you know some of those matches that he's lost to Nadal or you know like the Wimbledon match, the Wimbledon final that he lost to the, the epic final in what two thousand eight. Um, I mean that, uh, you know, that makes him. That that that's a moment where you could see, you know, this the the, the doubt and the and the and the internal struggle. But he never really he, he doesn't tend to talk about all that. Yeah. And so to get him to talk a little bit about it was was something that I tried to work with. And, yeah. Uh, you know. So yeah. So as you mentioned before, Bill Gates of all people is a character in this story, and like you said, some of this obviously was, you know, being opportune and and, and being in there in that moment for you um, as he was coming through there. But how, how did you see Gates fitting into this story? Because it seems like he had a, a real effect on uh, Federer. Yeah, well, I mean, anytime you get a chance to put Bill Gates, uh, you know, and. <laughs> And a story for ESPN, it's, I think it's a win. So um, just, you know, I mean, it's Bill Gates, right? So, uh, you know, first of all, just so obviously just the name uh, and who he is. And, wow, wait, hold on. You know, it's uh, not something that you're expecting to see Bill Gates in a sports story. 
um, and especially if, you know maybe you know a sports story with a, a fairly large scope. So, uh, um, but you know, I, I was really enamored with the fact that these two geniuses um, uh, are or two masters of what 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 they do um, formed uh, have formed this bond, and it's something that actually started uh, this year actually at. They didn't. The, the first time they really met was at uh, Indian Wells, which was in March, and they decided to hook up and um, try to have this charity exhibition event up in Seattle, where Roger would play, and they would raise money for Roger's foundation, which supports um, primarily education efforts in uh, in Africa, in the southern part of Africa, and um, and that's um, in Africa as a through the Gates Foundation is very, very focused. The, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is where Gates, all, all most of Gates' energy goes these days, um, they're very focused on Africa. So we had this, you know, Gates was a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a huge fan, a huge Federer fan. I call him a, a Federer super fan. <laughs> and, and, a, and a rec level tennis player who plays here in, in Seattle <laughs> at, a, at a club. He plays every week, apparently, at, a, at the, I think it's the Bellevue, Bellevue Athletic Club or so uh, here in Seattle. And so he's a big tennis fan and big Roger Federer fan. And they have this Africa interest and charity interest and philanthropy interest. So uh, the two of these guys together and, you know, when Roger was here, he, he you know, tried as much as possible to spend time with Gates and to pick his brain about particularly about philanthropy and how Roger could do a better job with philanthropy. And, and, uh, that seems to be something that act that Federer is very, uh, very keen on for, you know, the, uh, you know, the rest of, you know, the rest of his career and beyond. So, um, just, you know, some, some, some really cool moments. I mean, they, they met up at, uh, at uh, Gates House, which is called Xanadu 2.0. I know, that was a great, great point. <laughs> yeah. You sort of say, yeah. of course your house yeah. is named Xanadu 2.0, Bill Gates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know, how many thousands, tens of thousands of acres, you know, it's just this massive complex out in, uh, uh, on the shores of Lake Washington, which is in, in Bellevue, which is right across the, 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 uh, the, the Lake Washington from uh, downtown Seattle, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, to about 20 minutes from downtown Seattle, depending on the traffic. No traffic; it's 20 minutes, and uh, and uh, they just hit it off. You know, uh, they hit it off at, at dinner, and they had they had another couple of meals together, and they played tennis together, and then they played the exhibition match together, and you know, they, they they had a little sort of a lighthearted doubles set that they played um, before. Federer played um, John Isner in a in a in a match um, at the, at the exhibition. So, and then that Gates talked about how nervous he was. And uh, when, when I talked to Gates, he was he was mentioning how how nervous he was because he's having to play in front of I don't know fourteen fifteen thousand people, and how how Federer calmed him down and told him to just, you know relax and all. <laughs> so pretty uh pretty amazing. It was kind of a sort of a surreal moment surreal reporting moment on the on the same day that uh i called roger in uh he was in dubai at the time for some follow-up questions um and i must have called him at like 10 in the morning or so and we talked for about 15 20 minutes and then you know 10 minutes later i'm on the phone with bill gates 
And that's why I go, this is one of those like, this is a really weird profession I'm in, you know, it was like, you know, I was talking to Roger Federer and then, yeah, Bill Gates calls me and we we talk for another 20, 25 minutes. And <laughs> just, one of those weird things that, that happened to you as a reporter sometimes. So Quite a morning. So to to switch to another gear, and I'm, I'm curious about this before I let you go, but he mentions in the piece Federer does that, you know, he, he feels so much freer now and he, he wants to sort of express himself in different ways. And he, he says he wants to go out and do things like just go out and play pickup hoops. And I'm wondering how much you, you believe that, you know, how much this is he wants to turn into that guy like Bill Murray who just drops in on people in random places and is like, hey, I'm Roger Federer. Like, <laughs> let the fun begin. <laughs> I uh I don't know if it would be exactly like uh, like Murray, but I I believe him absolutely. I mean, there's a sense that you get from him that he wants very much to be treated and to treat other people like he's just a normal, you know, like he's not, like he, he he's he's the farthest thing from farthest from trying to big time people that you know uh, that you get that you can imagine he wants very much to be sort of one of us i i you know you clearly get that sense and uh and yet there's you know he's sort of he's trapped in his fame in a way right and and uh so it's hard for him to do that but he does you can just see it in the little little moments just the way he treats people i I noted that in a little uh there's a uh, yeah, a little Q and A thing at the start of the of the uh, the fame issue, which was the the Federer uh, ESPN the magazine issue that had the story. That I, I noted how um, you know the way he treats you know waiters and waitresses who who are coming to 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 meet us. Just he does things to try to disarm people um, and to, um, through his politeness and asking questions of other other people. It's very very odd um, how I thought, like, you know, I've been around, you know, a fair amount of sports stars, big time politicians and all that. It's very rare for them to, um, when you're around them as a journalist, to see them asking other people questions and interested in other people's lives. They're usually sort of there waiting for everybody else to ask them questions. And um, he was not that way. And you hear the stories about um, him in the locker room and the way he treats the other players. And it's all very much, like, you know, he's a, apparently he, he jokes a lot with the other players and he really makes an effort to try, especially with the younger players, to try to reach out to them and be be with them and be, and pr- almost prove like he's one of the guys. And uh, <laughs> we so there's that there's that side of him that I think is very yeah, I think that's a strong part of his of, of the way he thinks and, and how he wants to be. We talked you know, not only in the, that anecdote about him wanting to, he was talking about being in in, uh, in New York and he went with the basketball moment. He was actually talking about, uh, he said, yeah, sometimes I'll be in, in New York and I think it was Central Park or so. He said, and I'll drive by these, these courts, basketball courts, and I'll see people playing basketball and I'll want to get out and play. And I just want, and I'll, you know, and I'll, and, and, and I asked him, well, w- you know, would you do that? And, and he said, well, you know, he, he said, well, I, I'd feel too shy. You know? That's amazing. Feel, that is amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. So in the end, though, in the end, it was funny. I asked him, because you know, I play tennis still, you know, 
maybe once or twice a month here at my local public courts here in Seattle. And I yeah. say, well, Roger, you know, next time you're, you're in Seattle, um, give me a call. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to take you down to the, to the public courts, and we're just going to go hit. <laughs> I can actually still – I could actually get some balls back still from like a, a top pro, so, but I know he would never, but it was, you know, so he says, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do that. You know, and I know he was just trying to make me feel good, you know, but I think, I, I actually think that there was part of him that would like to do that. Yeah. Like, you know, he was sort of joking. Like, I don't, I don't think he would really do that, but in a way, but, but you could tell there's an, you know, when somebody's joking, there's also an element of truth in their, in their humor he would like to do that. You know, mm-hmm. he would like to show up just at the local lower Woodland park here where I play in Seattle and hit some balls and just be one of their, and then, Hey, let's go play some soccer too. You yeah. know, um, he, I don't know. That's just a sense that you get from the guy. Yeah. Um, so he's, uh, obviously pretty remarkable, remarkable human being. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I appreciate it. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash Double Truck. Double Truck is all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. We'll be back soon with more stories. Until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.